Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 25 of season four. So today I have a great conversation for you. I talked to Fiona Davis a few months ago, and I'm going to share that with you. But first, let me tell you all the ways you can help out Historical Fiction Unpacked, if you so desire. So as you know, if you listen to this podcast, the first way is by subscribing or following the show on your favorite app for listening. And then number two, please rate and review, especially on Apple Podcasts. This really helps um, draw more traffic to the show and and find more listeners who are lovers of historical fiction and would enjoy hearing all these interviews with authors. So if you could do that for me, that would be number one. And then if you want to join our community on Facebook, it's the Historical Fiction Unpacked podcast group. You can just search for it on Facebook or you can get there from the show notes. And then if you want to follow us on Instagram, we are at Historical Fiction Unpacked. One more thing, if you would like to put some money behind your support for Historical Fiction Unpacked or for my work as a writer, then please go to patreon.com slash Treat and check out all the benefits you can gain by joining my supportive community there. Moving on now to our guest today, I was so excited to have New York Times bestselling author Fiona Davis on my show. She is the author of six historical fiction novels set in iconic New York City buildings, including The Magnolia Palace, The Doll House, The Address, and The Lions of Fifth Avenue, which was a Good Morning America book club pick. Her novels have been chosen as One Book, One Community Reads, and her articles have appeared in publications like The Wall Street Journal and Oh, The Oprah Magazine. She first came to New York as an actress, but fell in love with writing after getting a master's degree at Columbia Journalism School. Her books have been translated into over a dozen languages, and she's based in New York City. So we do talk a little bit more about her story, how she became um, such a successful novelist, And we talk about her latest book, The Magnolia Palace. So here's my conversation with Fiona Davis. Fiona, thank you for joining me on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, your latest novel, The Magnolia Palace, released in January. Can you tell me about this book? Sure. So it's set at the Frick Collection. All my books are set in landmark New York City buildings. And this one is set at the Frick. And that's a it's beautiful mansion that was the residence to Henry Clay Frick, who was a big industrialist and a big art collector. And mm. then later was was became a museum, um, which is what it is today. And so my book is set in two timelines. And in 1919, it's from the point of view of this very celebrated artist's model named Lillian. And she gets caught up in a scandal and she ends up in the mansion working as the private secretary to Helen Clay Frick, who was the daughter of Henry Frick, as a way of kind of hiding out incognito from the police. And Helen's quite a prickly boss, to say the least. (laughs) And so Lillian gets drawn into the family drama, including romantic trysts and a stolen pink diamond called the Magnolia Diamond. Mm -hmm. And then in 1966 is the other timeline, And that's from the point of view of a Vogue model named Veronica. And she's at her first big shoot, which is a Vogue shoot at the Frick in the 60s. 
and it goes terribly mm-hmm. wrong. And she ends up getting locked inside and trapped inside during a, a snowstorm with an intern named Joshua. And she discovers a series of clues that are hidden within the artwork on the walls. And that draws her and Joshua into a kind of a scavenger hunt. Uh, and one that she hopes might solve all of her financial problems, as well right. as possibly solve a decades old murder um, that happened in the Frick family. <laughs> so there's a lot going on. <laughs> yes, there is. But you weave it together so beautifully. I told you before we started recording that I just finished reading this last night. And um, I greatly enjoyed it. Um, so what was your inspiration? You know, I started with the building. I have always loved the Frick. It's a beautiful mansion. It's kind of set back from Fifth Avenue. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like the big, crazy mansions that they built in the Gilded Age. It's a a little more elegant and restrained. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you ask any New Yorker, they'll often say it's their favorite museum. And I think that's because there's all this beautiful artwork on the walls. He collected Turner and Renoirs and Vermeers. And so as you walk around, it's been beautifully preserved in that there's still the furnishings and the rugs and these paintings on the walls. So it really feels like you've stepped back in time when you go into this museum. There's a lot inside it. You know, each each room is filled and and kind of bursting with elegance and beautiful items, including the artwork. And so, yeah, people just love it. It's It's a really wonderful, wonderful building. Yeah. And so um, the main character, Lillian, the artist model from 1919, she is also based on a real person, as you know, in, in addition to the actual Frick family being real people. Um, or I guess I should say she's based loosely yes. on a real yeah. artist model. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was kind of interesting because I, I knew the Frick family would make a really interesting uh, set of characters as I researched them and learned about them. And then I, I came upon this idea of including this character named Lillian, who's inspired by Audrey Munson. And mm-hmm. if you look above the front door of the Frick, and it's even on the cover, you can see there's this woman kind of carved in stone above the entrance of the Frick. And the woman who actually posed for that was a celebrated artist model named Audrey Munson. And she was very famous in the early 1900s for her be perfect neoclassical beauty. She was absolutely stunning. Right. Um, but she got caught up in a scandal, very similar to the one in the book. And, but her trajectory from my character Lillian's is different um, because I, yes. you know, I, I wanted to have a different kind of ending. So Audrey's true ending um, was that she, she and her mother kind of moved upstate to get away from the scandal. She tried to commit suicide by drinking mercury And then eventually her mother put her in an asylum where she died uh, in 1996 at the age of 104. Mm -hmm. And at that time she was buried in an unmarked grave. And so as I did this research about this woman who was connected to the Frick, I just thought, what an amazing story. And how interesting that no one's heard of her name because she was really overshadowed by the the sculptors. And and her her image can be found all over New York City in statues throughout the city. And yeah. so she's still around today, which is kind of wonderful. Right. That's so interesting. 
Um, so how did you decide to write this novel in dual timeline form? I love, I love having two timelines in a book, but is this something you've done in other books or was this new for you? Yeah, I've done it in almost all the books except for one. Okay. And, and I, you know, it's the, I love reading dual timeline books. So when I started working on my debut, I just thought, oh, you know, I'll do dual timeline because that's fun. And if I'd known yeah. how hard it is, <laughs> I would have never done it. I know. Right. <laughs> It's so tough weaving them together, but in the end, it's really kind of a brain puzzle. Right. And so it's, it's really fun with this one because it's about 50 years apart that there's, you know, you can hopefully have this ending that's very satisfying yet surprising as these two mm-hmm. timelines kind of surge um, and, and, and intertwine at the very end. Yes. Yeah, I love that. So can you tell me about your research and writing process as you, when you prepare for a book, how do you start? Yeah, you know, I, I do about three to four months of pretty serious research where I'm talking to people who are experts in either the building or the time period. And, um, you know, with this, I, I was able to get into the Frick and this was right before lockdown. So they gave mm. me a wonderful behind the scenes tour down to the basement where there's a bowling alley that was built mm-hmm. in 1914 and still works. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing. Right. And then up to the maids rooms on the third floor. So you could, I just got a wonderful sense of how the house was set up and how yeah. it might work as a residence. And then of course, how it works as a museum. And, and so it's really getting a, an idea of who these characters might be researching the fricks, reading biographies. You know, we have mm-hmm. Lillian becoming a private secretary. So I found a book from 1905 on how to be a private secretary, uh, mm-hmm. which was good fun. And just finding yeah. all these interesting clues that hopefully bring the story to life as I start writing the plot so that, you know, for example, there's a dinner party. And for that dinner party, I used an actual menu that oh, were in, wow. it was in the Frick um, digital archives from yeah. a dinner party that they served for 30 people back in 1915. So it's that, that kind of fun little detail to throw in, right. which is what I love to do. Yeah, that's really cool. So um, I'm wondering about the whole the part of the book where there's so much information about how sculptors work because um, Lillian is a, a model for artists and, and mainly sculpt sculptors. Mm-hmm. So um, did you already have knowledge about that and how um, like the process of sculpting and how that would work? Or was that something you had to study? Oh, no, I didn't. And, and you know, there, there's a wonderful book on, um, on uh, Audrey Munson, I I start mixing up my real characters and the real people, you know, and um, there's a wonderful book about that, that really include a a lot of information on how that sculpting process worked back then, that they would make a clay model of the woman first, and then they'd Mm. start working in stone. And so that was really helpful. And I also spoke with a, a wonderful sculptor named Meredith Bergman. She has the one that's in Central Park now um, for the, the suffragette memorial. That's okay. in the park. And so I was able to to talk with her and send her this, the manuscript early on and say, all right, what's wrong here? And she right. came back with a few fixes, which was very helpful because you want to make sure those, those are right. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I am curious because as I was reading this, I have, um, I have two daughters mm-hmm. of my own and um, a son also, but I was more thinking of the girls because I'm not sure how I feel about Kitty, who's Lillian's mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I question why she allowed her daughter to 
to get into this line of work. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like it would be something that I would not encourage my daughters to do. <laughs> and and then on top of that, I know she didn't in the I mean, it's not a spoiler because it's very beginning. Yes. She's already gone. Um, she's already dead from the um the flu pandemic. And um obviously she didn't plan to die, but I feel like she really left she left Lillian kind of unprepared and alone and vulnerable in the world. Um, yeah. Where at her age, I would have expected her to be a little more prepared for yeah, um, taking care of herself. So I'm just curious how, how you feel about that and how, um, how that works. Yeah. Writing it. No, I think that's such a, an interesting point you bring up and it's true. You know, in the book, Kitty is a little reluctant to have her daughter, you know, her daughter is the one who wants to move to New York and become an actress and be on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And they both kind of get starstruck and caught up in that, that world. And then when, yeah. when Lillian gets asked to pose for a sculptor, they're, they're kind of, you know, falling on hard times and it's easy money. And, right. you know, she's Lillian, of course, is very young still at that point, but mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a, a way of, helping the family is the way she yeah. sees it. Cause there's no father around. So it's really just the two of them. And so in, in my mind, you know, she becomes this really celebrated figure, even though maybe in the elite classes, you know, posing nude for a man who's not your husband is frowned on. They still love the artwork. And, mm-hmm. and that's just an interesting thing to explore of, you know, how, well, this is how it's made. So right, yeah, it really is the the people who are you know <laughs> posing for it, and so yeah, and and I I like the idea of including the Spanish flu just because you know of course we were going through the pandemic, and that right. having her mother kind of taken away very abruptly really leaves yeah. her at wit's end because you know she knows how to pose, but her mother really handled the business aspects of it, mm-hmm. and that leaves her her really struggling, and and you know you want a character to have this learning curve throughout the book where they start in one place and they end up in another. And so by having her become the private secretary to Helen Frick, she's really challenged and pushed to use her mind instead of her, her body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so there is so much in this novel about family relationships. <laughs> so not only in the, the relationship between Lillian and her mother, which we just talked about, but also, um, I mean, there's also, Veronica and her family, you know, her sister Mm -hmm. that she's trying to take care of. Um, And then the volatile relationships among the Frick family members. (laughs) um, (laughs) That was, was a lot of that um, true to life for them? Yeah. Yeah. The Frick family were very interesting because, you know, you had this Mr. Frick who was a really tough industrialist and union breaker Mm -hmm. and, you know, had, wasn't exactly a, you know, it didn't have much of a spotless record. And, right. and he was used to getting what he wanted. He made his first million by the age of 30 and mm-hmm. was a, you know, considered a really important guy. And so he had, he, there were two children living as adults, two, two died when they were young. And so it's Helen and her brother Childs and her brother Childs moved to Long Island. He was interested in fossils you know, mm-hmm. and Helen really, because of the tragedy of losing her older sister when she was very young, the mom, Adelaide, very much retreated. And yeah. and so Helen took up to become her father's confidant in many ways, 
in terms of the art collecting and socially. And so they had this really, really close relationship, yet, um, you know, they, they would often have these huge fights. There's a big fight in the book over an overcoat. And that apparently really happened. That was in one of the, bi- mm. the biographies. And so it was just interesting because Helen, of course, was, you know, when, when he died, she was the richest single woman in America. She was left $38 million in 1919. And she wow. went on to live this very interesting life. But it, from what I've read in, in profiles and, and biographies, she was just difficult to get along with. She was, mm-hmm. you know, a tricky woman, yet at the same time, she did these wonderful things like going to World War I, to France, and, you know, helping with the refugees. And she, she was a, a very interesting study in, in contrasts, I would say. Yes. Yeah. Very, yeah, fascinating. <laughs> so then toward the end of the book, the theme of forgiveness comes up, you know, Lillian kind of brings that up. What, what message are you trying to send with that? Yeah. Oh, what an interesting question. I, I, you know, you have these two women who are very different. So you have this free spirited artists model, and then you have this very temperamental and prickly Helen Frick, and they're both connected by this glorious mansion. And Mm -hmm. I love the idea that they're both such complete contrasts, yet they have to work closely together. And what kind of conflict does that create? And so in the end, you know, all of my books, because so many are dual timeline, I don't like to have automatically a happy ending because that's not the way it worked, you know, sometimes. So some of the endings might be tragic. Some might be very positive. And this one, I wanted the women to have really lived their lives and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, have to deal with what they went through during a very traumatic time back in 1919 and have to right. face the music in a way. And so that was my idea for the ending is to how, how those two timelines would intertwine. Right. Yeah. I, I loved the way they came together at the end. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And I think forgiveness is uh, such an interesting concept because as you go through life, you know, tough things happen and, mm-hmm. and how do you deal with that? Do you hold on to the grudge Mm-hmm. Or do you move forward and and forgive someone who who might have hurt you terribly? Right. And so I think that that tends to come out in probably every book because you know now I'm in my mid fifties and and it's it's I couldn't have written these books when I was in my twenties. I, yeah. I wouldn't have had anything <laughs> to say. And it's only once you've gone through some things that uh, you know I felt like I was ready to actually write a novel, which surprised me completely. <laughs> Right. Well, that's a perfect segue because I was going to ask next, have you always loved to write? Um, tell us how you became a published author. Yeah, it was a long and winding road. I <laughs> did. I loved reading, but I never imagined writing a book that seemed, mm. you know, for other people to do. And I came to New York and worked as an actress for about 10 years and then went to Columbia Journalism School and got a master's. And that's where I learned to write nonfiction and how to interview people and research and how to create an arc within a story, even if it's an 800 word article on heartburn, you know, how do you do it? And so then I I left and I worked and wrote, I did a lot of freelance articles on health and fitness and the arts. Mm. And then the idea for my first book came to me as a possible article that would be set at the Barbizon Hotel for Women, which 
in the 2000s became a condo. And that building's mm. interesting because all these famous women lived there, like Joan Didion and um, Grace mm. Kelly and Lauren Bacall. And wow. then it became condo. And, and I was just curious how that building had changed over time. Yeah. And it just struck me that it might work as a novel to be able to, you know, create characters that are inspired by real people. And then, of course, you know, in, in every author's note, I make it very clear what's made up and what's not, because I know readers like to know that. Right. And that eventually became my first book, uh, The Dollhouse. And I was wow. suddenly off on a completely new trajectory. I, I was quite surprised the success was really wonderful for that, for a debut. And, mm-hmm. and then I was just off to the races. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. How did you go from, you wrote the, that novel, and then how did you find a publisher for it? I, you know, first I found an agent and I had been going to writers conferences and, you know, panels Mm. just to learn a little more about the industry of fiction writing, which is very different from journalism. Yes. And so I remember I went to a panel and I heard an agent talk and I thought, oh, you know, she sounds like she wants strong female characters and might be interested in Mm -hmm. my manuscript. So I, when it was ready, I sent it to her. And she, uh, to a number of, of agents and got a ton of rejections. Uh, but you know, you only need just one and she's been my agent ever since. And it's been a really wonderful ride. She really taught me so much and has been by my side the entire time. And so together we worked on the manuscript even more because it needed a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And then we sent it out and, um, Dutton, uh, bought it and, and we signed a deal with them and they've published all of my books ever since. It's been, it's really wow. wonderful. It's a, it's an amazing group. Yeah. Well, the book is beautiful as well as being a great read. So yeah, I'm sure you're very happy with that. Yeah. The art direction, the team that um, did the cover, I thought really knocked it out of the ballpark. It was beautiful. The minute I laid my eyes on it, I thought, yep, that's it. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are you working on next? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So the next book, uh, I was trying to figure out what to do next. And I got an email through my website from a woman who said that she was in her 80s. She was a former Rockette and living in South Carolina. And and she said, you know, if you want to know the secrets of Radio City, you should call me. And I (laughs) thought, well, sure, you know, how great. And so we had a wonderful conversation. And and she, she's just terrific and had all of this information that you need about, okay, what was the schedule? You know, what, what, was, mm-hmm. what was it like as a rocket? What was your daily life like? And I did a little more research into New York City in the 1950s. And so it'll be set in Radio City in the 50s from the point of view of a rocket. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it's really fun to work on because I've been interviewing a number of rockets in their 70s and 80s. And you're, you're just hearing these great stories. Yeah, that sounds like fun. Is that going to be dual timeline or not? Um, not really. It'll be bookended by modern times and then okay. jump back for the most of the book. Yeah. So it's a little, it's a little different from the other ones. Right. Right. So this is a question I ask all my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? I love that question. Oh. Oh, thank you. You know, I I think as I've written these books that have taken place in the 1880s and the 1980s in in the McCarthy era of the 1950s, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in in the jazz age of the 1920s, 
what I am always surprised at, and especially in writing dual timelines, is the cycles that we go through as a country mm. and as a city. And, yeah. and so there's these kind of boom times and then bust times. There's times when politically things are charged and difficult. There are times when, you know, people are getting along. And what I've, mm-hmm. what I, I think what we realize is that there's nothing new. You know, we've gone through these things before. And by looking back, we can learn how people yeah. manage. How did they manage the Spanish flu? Because mm-hmm. here we are again, you know, at the end of a pandemic. And, right. and that's where I think the gold is. And also learning how women's voices and agency have changed over time and the ways that mm-hmm. they haven't. And being very conscious of, of how we're moving forward as, as women. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So Fiona, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, the best is probably, you can go to my website, fionadavisbooks.com. And there's a newsletter there you can sign up for. And I'm mm-hmm. also on Instagram as Fiona Davis author and Facebook as well as, and Twitter as Fiona Davis books. <laughs> okay. If you search for me, you'll find me. And I'm, I'm pretty active yes. there, you know, showing a lot of the research behind the books. So um, please join me. It's a lot of fun. Right. That's great. That's so interesting. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. This is wonderful. And I'm, I'm just really honored to be here. I appreciate it. Well, friends, I am sure that you enjoyed that conversation because even as I was editing it and listening to it again, I really enjoyed listening to Fiona talk about this book again. Um, If you want to know more about the books I read, you can always join my Patreon and I release a monthly video book review of the books that I'm reading and they are usually books featured on this podcast. So make sure to check that out at patreon.com slash Allison Treat. That's Allison with one L, -L A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T. And I want to remind you also to check out the show notes that go along with this podcast. You can find all the show notes for all my podcast episodes at alisontreat.com slash blog. So as usual, I want to leave you with a quote today. And this one just was sparked by what Fiona said about there being nothing new. Ambrose Pierce said it well, there is nothing new under the sun, but there are lots of old things we don't know. So my friends, keep reading historical fiction and discovering those old things. And I will talk to you again next week.